Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Day One Leadership Podcast. Today is day one. Every day is day one. I am here today with Shane Feldman. He is the founder of Count Me In. He has been recognized by the Canadian House of Commons. He's been a representative candidate to the United Nations Youth Assembly. He is, or was, as he pointed out, because he has now lost the title, because he's 21 years old now. He was one of Canada's top 20 under 20. So, Shane, thanks so much for joining us here on the Day One Leadership Podcast. Thank you for inviting me to, to be here, Drew. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, I first heard from Shane. I'm walking along the pass at Princeton University. I was down there on tour and my phone rings. I pick it up and uh, it's Shane on the other end saying, look, I am putting together the largest youth-led event in the world and uh, I want you to come and be a part of it. And it's going to be all of these high school students. And I remember thinking, uh, I'm going to be the oldest guy there, aren't I? And I'm pretty sure I was, but uh, you were actually, and I, I'm not going to lie, man, I actually thought, okay, yeah, sure, it's it's the largest youth-led event in the world. And then I show up, and there's like 3,000 or 4,000 students there. Everyone backstage is under the age of 19. It was it was pretty amazing. So that's how we originally met. And tell tell our listeners a little bit about what that event was, because that was, at the time, you know, that was really the big kickoff for Count Me In. Tell, tell us about that event, about Count Me In, about what it is that has been driving you all these years. Sure. I mean, that, that event, as you said, really was uh, our first really big main stage event. The only event prior was our pilot project, which was really just a small school assembly that ended up you know, engaging more than 400 students from seven schools, and that was really the first. But this was all born, everything that Count Me In is today, the events, that conference year at was born out of an idea I had during my freshman year after a really uh, crappy transition into high school. I had just moved to a new community the summer before high school, and I had a lot of trouble meeting people and making friends and slipping through cracks. And what saved me from depression was when I went to my guidance counselor to try and transfer to a different school, he ended up forcing me to sign up for at least five different clubs or councils or teams before he'd entertain the idea. And I figured I was just getting this formality kicked out of the way by signing up to these clubs that he had helped connect me with, that he felt matched my interests. And the reality is the more I got involved, the better everything else got. I mean, I was making friends. I was talking to people in the halls. Everything was so much you know, lighter all of a sudden and so much happier. And I started loving school. And then I started to realize how many students weren't involved and were probably missing out on what I just recognized as all this awesomeness, all these opportunities all around me. So I wanted to help show them how to get involved, how it could, you know, make their life better. And, you know, volunteering, making an impact was almost secondary to just how it makes you feel on the inside. So all of this was born out of my idea for a school assembly to motivate kids to get involved in the communities and then help connect them to those opportunities within the school and, and outside the walls. And, and so you decided to take it way bigger. And, and so like, how did 4,000 people It wasn't even a conscious up? decision. I mean, like I said, start as a small school assembly and just that first one, I mean, the goal is 50, kids from my school you know we were gonna have a, a pizza lunch and you know really small like a few speakers I was hoping to get in kind of like a club sphere afterwards but as we were planning it students started 
talking about it and tweeting about it and teachers were talking to each other as as they do and we ended up getting calls and emails from teachers at other schools and I just figured why not I mean if all these people want to bring their classes on this field trip that they thought we were putting together so I kind of went with the lie it's kind of like I was forced to you know fake it till you make it I was almost forced into that because all of, of these teachers at the schools had assumed we were putting on this big event when really it was like this small in a classroom and then I was like hey we need to find a community theater to do this thing with seats and and so it kind of snowballed into this larger event and then the progression to a bigger theater the next year and a bigger audience was pretty natural I mean the year after that it was a thousand students then 1500 the year after that and now you know that this past spring we engage more than 3,000 people in attendance, and then the events now broadcast. I mean, that, that was our second annual global broadcast, which in turn reached about 8 million kids in 104 countries. So I, I want to be clear, this was not quite intentional. It wasn't like I had this idea in my freshman year, like, hey, I'm going to start this nonprofit. It's going to be this massive international organization. It's going to impact all these people. It was like, hey, how can I get a few kids in my school to get involved? And obviously it resonated obviously it was something different that wasn't being done out there and i think that just shows how when you do something that's different and unique and there's a real you know purpose that it's it's serving and it's useful and people resonate with it it's it's easy for it to snowball and you know at some some points i feel like i'm running after count me and chasing it keeping up with you know the the involvement now what do you hope count me and brings to people so you said it started as this this supposed to be a 50 person event to get people involved in their schools now you're talking 8 million people getting you know, impacted by the broadcast. But if someone said, okay, well, what does Count Me In do? What do you tell them? I mean, the standard line, if you're you know, on the website, is that we promote volunteerism and, and we help uh, show teens how getting involved in their community can help them not only overcome personal issues and, and, and depression and, and other mental health obstacles, but also become this, this missing link you know, that they sometimes don't even realize is missing in their, in their life and how giving back, you know, it makes a huge impact on you as a person, let alone the, the community that you're working in. So that's kind of like the standard, but for me, I mean, what's, what's inside of me driving me forward is knowing that what inspires me and, and what has always inspired me for as long as, as I can remember are young kids and teens that are just doing awesome things, having tons of fun, you know, making impacts, being, you know, quote unquote, student leaders. And while that's always inspired me, what has motivated me a lot to, to keep pushing this forward is all the stories that I hear and all the people that I met and all the friends that I've had and I, I currently have who feel lost, who feel like they don't have a purpose, who feel like you know they don't have value. And it's those people and those students and those friends that you know push me, whether they realize it or not, every single day to grow Count Me In and, and have it reach more people because I know the more people it reaches, the more people you know, will realize they have value and they have that purpose and you know that there is no such thing as as average and insert whatever cliche you want here but it's so true that the more you volunteer the more you get involved it's natural and and you know you can't help but feel value you can't help but feel that you're making an impact and it's incredibly empowering so that's the ultimate goal and that's kind of the heart and drive pushing me forward so count me in job is to connect people to other organizations that can give them the opportunity to to grow in some way or shape or form. And connect them within themselves. I mean, a lot of our programs now are mentorship-based. So it, it started as, you know, holding students' hands through finding that perfect volunteer opportunity, but more and more we realized that students really want to start their own initiatives and lead their own. And and again, a lot of that, that self-empowerment comes from designing your own projects and ideas. So 
you know, instead of just signing up to volunteer with the, the Cancer Society, maybe you want to run your own project that, you know, will raise money and support that cause. Or maybe it's just an awareness campa campaign you want to do independently. But it's a cause that's close to your heart and you want to do something special, entrepreneurial. So we actually have a team of mentors that are, are assisting students uh, across and outside the country and starting their own grassroots initiatives. So a lot of this has become more mentorship based. So you're, you're, this starts from your experience as a freshman. Um, so you're what, 15 years old at the time? 13. So 13 you were 13 years old. <laughs> yeah, late birthday, turn, turning 14. Oh, wow. So yeah. the first time you did a Count Me An event, you were what? Like, was it the same year? Was it the next year? Uh, when it actually came to life, the idea started in, in my ninth grade year, but the first actual program event was actually uh, grade 11. So it was actually in 2011. So you did this right through the end of high school. So this is now what drives you. I know you're, you're speaking now and you're, you're running Count Me In. What was the plan? Like obviously this, this must have sort of derailed what the original plan was in your life, right? What was the original plan? Uh, you know, when I, when I was in high school, I, I joined an, an arts program halfway through my, my freshman year, which was another kind of piece that really helped help family forward being being in a drama program. My goal since I was probably nine years old was to be an actor and to to, you know, be a part of as many theater productions and TV and movies and all that kind of stuff. I, I was always interested in that. Uh, was part of every single play, school play and production and, and community production throughout uh, middle school and high school. And that was that was my plan. I was actually in a few professional productions. I dabbled into to a couple episodes of Degrassi. Like I was totally feeling out that that whole world. And as Count Me and started to grow, it didn't just open my eyes to that that opportunity to do something a little more rewarding with a little more impact beyond just you know entertaining people. But it also opened my mind to. Uh, technical production because running these conferences as you witness you know a lot of that for me turned into wearing this producer hat you know as a 15 year old 16 year old 17 year old and learning you know how to call a show how to design uh, a production you know and and dabbling into my prior knowledge from being a part of theatrical productions to actually figure out okay what is the lighting going to look like when Drew's on stage you know when we have this musical act following him what's that transition look like and so now it's opened up this this whole world of opportunity to me in terms of producing and and directing and uh, and so I'm very thankful that you know you you say derailed I I just think it was always down the path for me and I just hadn't quite reached the point where I could see that far, but acting was never going to fill the kind of void in me that, uh, that producing and count me in and, and speaking has, has been filling perpetually over the last uh, half dozen years. Because now you're basically a CEO of a major, a major organization here. Like you, like, as you say, you're hitting 8 million people on the broadcast, but I mean, I've, I've talked to you before, like the path when you're, 17, 18 years old is your, like the only way you're going to be successful is you graduate and you go to university and then whatever happens, like you can do all these little hobbies in the meantime. So, you know, for the people out there who are listening to this, who, who are, are younger and, and for their parents, like I know you struggled a little bit with this, this social push to be like, okay, well, you better still go to university, even though this thing is growing and you're doing things that university graduates like hope to one day do. Was there still this thing in your mind that was just like, well, you can't make this your life yet you have to go through the hoops right was that something you still struggled with 
Um, at, at some points, I know I did. That that was definitely, you know, there was a voice in the back of my head saying, okay, you, you really have to continue on and, you know, get that piece of paper and go down that, that more formal structured route that you've been told you have to go down for your entire life. But there, there came a point where I decided I was going to go to university and I got into, you know, my dream program. In fact, the only program I could ever see myself at, I got into, um, which was RTA, the, the media production program at Ryerson University in Toronto. And it was just the right amount of hands-on and small classes and it wasn't like big lecture and, and you know, vague topics. It was all very specific, totally uh, related to my, my passion for production. And, and it was a four-year degree program. So like checked off all the boxes, awesome. And I started it, made the best friends, had an incredible time, loved the community. But the classes, I mean, although they were great and engaging and entertaining and I was really loving them, after the first semester and then the second semester, I just started to increasingly feel like I was wasting time. And it's not that I wasn't learning and it's not that I wasn't loving classes, it's not that I wasn't doing well either. Every time I was, you know, in class behind my computer or, you know, writing a, a, a paper or working on a project, all I could think about is this isn't real. This is for a grade. This is for a class. And everything in the back of my mind is, you know, count me in and, and speaking and producing and all these actual productions that are going on. And that's real life. So what am I doing neglecting my real life to work on this, you know, fictional made up problems, you know, in a classroom studio, you know, it's just, it's just not real. So if I'm in school to get to the point where I can graduate to then go off and do real things after I've kind of practiced and learned, well, what if, what if I've already done that? What if I'm already in the zone where I'm doing real things? And again, don't want to discredit the program. I love it. And I hope to go back and take some more classes because there's always learning to be done. But at that point in time, I just had to recognize after two fantastic years in that program, I had to take a step back and focus on what was real life for me because that is what was calling me. And I'm just thankful that I was courageous enough to let my family know that that is the, the choice I was making. And that's what I felt I had to do. Now, obviously, a lot of self-reflection going on there. So let's dive into the, the always got to start the podcast with, okay, let's talk about the story. So let's start to dive into the self-reflective side of things so that we can get the listeners thinking about, thinking about it as well. So let's kick off with the question, all right? So I got someone who follows you around for 30 days of your life. They see everything, personal, private, public, you know, online and virtual, uh, people you love, people you hate the way you interact with all of these people, that they see everything. So you don't know they're following you, but they see all the way you act, but that's it. You can't talk to them. All they see is how you act. If I sat that person down at the end of 30 days and said, you followed Shane Feldman around, what three values does he stand for above all others? What three values are the primary values he uses to make decisions in his life? If you've been the man that you want to be for those 30 days, what three values do you hope someone says drive you? The three values that I, I consciously try and, and live by and live through every day, I mean, they're kind of, they're, they're almost more like virtues, but it's uh, respect, compassion, and kindness. Okay. And that's like, I, I try and kind of funnel everything I do through a lens of, of kindness, respect, and compassion. Okay, so here's the, the question. Imagine someone you someone you knew, someone highly intelligent, comes up to you and says, you know, I'm not from around here. And in my language, my first language, the word respect doesn't exist. 
Can you explain it to me in the simplest English terms possible? Like, how do you explain what respect actually means? Because, I mean, those are great words, but, and this is really what the podcast is all about. Like, let's start diving into to what these actually mean. So how, does, how do you define the word respect? How would you explain it to someone who never heard it before? That's a great question. I think, uh, I think it comes down to having a, a certain genuine tolerance um, for, for just about everything but when I say genuine I mean you know you don't you don't want to necessarily show you don't want to be tolerant to things that you don't stand for you don't believe in like you you want to be careful to stay authentic and you know I would probably list that as my fourth virtue or, or value that I that I live through authenticity but respect I think has to do with tolerance I think it has to do with being open to other people's beliefs and opinions and thoughts, whether they clash with yours, whether they are totally against what you believe in, understanding that, you know, that human being has the time and, and space to think and believe and voice whatever it is they want to. And it's not your job to judge them. It's not your job to tell them what they can and cannot think and believe. And so whether you strongly agree or strongly disagree, to allow them to hold space for them to believe those things and think those things and not let it have a direct impact on you and and your life and you know not turning it into resentment or judgment now what's interesting is, is you use the word tolerance there and and it's funny because i used to work with someone who can't stand that word someone said you know they were they said well you know uh we, we've done a really good job tolerating this particular group of people that we don't like very much. And she just said, how does it feel to be tolerated as a person? So like, why do you choose that particular word? Like is tolerance a dangerous word? Because doesn't tolerate mean that you put up with it, even though you don't agree with it. Like is respect, not fundamentally about being about something more than tolerance. Isn't is respect about acceptance or is it just about tolerating? Cause tolerating seems to still imbue the thing you're talking about with some level of negativity. Don't you think? So tolerating something means it's it's lousy, but I'm willing to put up with that. It can absolutely mean that. I I, I I agree, and that's why I was really careful to say you know genuine tolerance or whatever whatever term I use because I do think um, you know tolerating someone when you use it in that way can be perceived as as a negative, um, and and you want to like I said you know holding space for that person, not turning into resentment or judgment. So that means you know being open, being accepting, all those things. Which you know I, the, the the term I used was uh, genuine tolerance. But no, I, I don't want that to be misconstrued as you know holding a, a uh, tolerating something when you when that is not authentic to you, when that is not you know does not jive with the kind of person that you are, right? So channeling the kind of person you are, being you, staying true to yourself, then when you're there in that place, finding that that openness, finding that acceptance for the world around you and the people surrounding you. Yeah, so I, is it possible to respect others if you haven't taken a look at, at what you expect out of yourself? I, uh, I'm not sure if it's possible or impossible, but I'm certain it would be a whole lot harder I, I think, you know, the same way that for me, 
making friends at the beginning of, of high school and throughout many other parts of my life, it was really hard to do when I wasn't friends with myself, but I had to realize that. And the second I realized that and that clicked for me and I was able to look a little deeper inside of me and become my own friend, you know, why would anyone else want to be friends with you if you're not friends with yourself? Yeah. So I think that's, you know, goes along the same, the same lines. Um, you, you really have to start with you, with, with everything. You know, I think it's much bigger than respect with anything in life, with anything that you're working on, anything that you're doing, I think the first step for everything is always looking inside yourself, which I get is not only hard, but sometimes terrifying and scary. You don't want to see what's under there. You want to see what's inside there. And um, all I can say is from personal experience and from you know watching some close friends go through whatever you know personal process to, to look inside as terrifying and daunting as it can be, it's always worth it when you get out the other side. And it can be a long journey or a hard journey, and I'm not undermining that, but it's always worth it when you're able to get through it. And I, I think that's an important thing to recognize and not to lose sight of. Yeah, I had a buddy of mine tell me that uh, everything, anything that you want is on the other side of something shitty. <laughs> and I, 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 I kind of like the honesty to that. Like anything you want is on Absolutely. the other side of something shitty. Like, and you know, I don't fully agree. I, I don't think it's always shitty, but I, I think when you, when you do, you know, push through those tougher, stickier situations, it's you know, always a little bit brighter on the other side. And the same way, you know, when you're looking at a beautiful sunset, you know, it can be amazing and beautiful and bright. But if you have been in, you know, a dark cave for 30 days and, or you're Kimmy Schmidt or whatever it is, and you, and you just come out for the first time and see it, it could be the exact same sunset that you're looking at and saying is bright and beautiful, but it's going to be a whole different realm of bright and beautiful to me who's been in the dark for 30 days. So how about kindness? So how do we, how do we describe how would you say to someone, this is what kindness means? Because this is really what I like to get at is that people love to throw the values around. Okay, let's actually dive into them. So for instance, respect for me ultimately mean, meant, because I wanted to come up with a way of respecting people without having to agree with them. Because I mean, that was the danger. I'm like, if I just define respect as, oh, like whatever people think, you know, it has value. No, because I think there's opinions that don't deserve respect, which doesn't mean that there's people who don't necessarily. I guess there are too, but... You know, for me, respect came down to starting to truly understand that anything people think, say, or do, or believing that if you respect someone, you believe that whatever they think, say, or do, they are honestly thinking it, saying it, or doing it because they truly believe it will make the world better. Now, that allows you to respect the person while completely disagreeing with whatever they think, say, or do, because ultimately what you're saying is, okay, that person, at least I'm giving them the respect of being like, they don't believe this because they're stupid or they're racist or they're misogynistic, like making your initial response to someone an honest belief that they're trying to do good means you're respecting the person, but it still allows you the flexibility to be like, but I'm not going to support anything that they think, say or do, but it doesn't make you assume that they're doing it because they're less than you. And I think that was a real challenge, right? So and I guess maybe I just described tolerance again myself. So maybe I backed <laughs> myself into a corner, right? But, you know, taking that, that viewpoint, you're able to then, you know, take that class you route without being, you know, without going against your moral code or your values, right? But just understanding, like you said, that, you know, that's just their belief. That's where they are. And they truly believe that that is going to make the world a better place. So it, it makes sense. So let's talk about kindness, all right? Like, let, when we say these words, we say, oh, we assume everyone knows what they mean. So let's pretend that's not the case. So you've got respect. Now, kindness. Dive into kindness for me. How do you pull a card? Like, how do you define that? Kindness. You know, I'm, 
I have a feeling this isn't what you would find in the dictionary, but to me, kindness is is honestly rooted in gratitude. It's rooted in uh, living through being grateful for, for people, for where they are, for where they're at. And I'm trying not to use the word respect, <laughs> but but I, I do think they, they, they these things play with each other a lot. I think that they're they none of them are kind of independent entities that that work alone. Kindness does have to do with respect and compassion, and which I'm sure we're going to talk about after. Um, but but I think I I mean the, the first thing that popped in my mind was gratitude. It's you know kindness to me is when you're when you're walking down the street and you see someone, you know, the perfect example that, you know, has less than you do, it's having that moment of like, I'm, I'm grateful for what I have and I want to share that, right? So that's, that's a step two. Step one is being grateful and feeling that gratitude. The second step is then sharing that gratitude and, you know, doing that through whatever means you feel appropriate or necessary or, you know, whatever, whatever means you feel that you are capable of doing in that, in that moment, whatever the situation might be. Uh, whether it's saying something, doing something, taking an action, or just thinking a thought. I mean, it could be as simple as that, or smiling at someone, whatever, whatever it is, but having that, that gratitude for something that you've experienced, something that you have in your life, and sharing it. So in your mind, the definition of kindness is tied in, inexorably to, to an, a whole other value, is gratitude, right? So I think they're all tied together, honestly. Oh, okay. I, I, mean, I mean, not all, not every single value out there, but the ones that, that we're talking about, I think that they, they can be used interchangeably in a lot of ways, and I think they do play together and support each other. So kindness is, kindness is feeling gratitude and, and, sharing it. and wanting to share it. Wanting to share it and sharing it, right? Ah, you can't so, just want to do something, right? You have to actually take that step and do it. I think that's a really important uh, distinction as well, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I like that you pointed that out. And I like, think they're both important. I think you need to want to genuinely want to do it and take the step. I think those are both equally as important. Now, your third one, compassion. I, I just heard Amanda Lindhout, uh, who wrote A House in the Sky, had been mm -hmm. kidnapped for, I think, about 18 months in Somalia, oh. talk about compassion. So no pressure. Mm. Um, I heard her definition. What's yours? <laughs> I'm so curious what hers is. I haven't had the pleasure of hearing her, her speak, but it's a fantastic story and I have such respect for her. My, you know, when it comes to compassion for me, it's, it's rooted in uh, kindness and respect. No, I'm just kidding. But it is, well, it's doing everything through, through heart and through love and not in like a, a hippie or a cliche way, but it's, you know, I, I'm, so happy, genuinely happy to have a life and to be able to, you know, live this life that, that I have. And I feel like the, the amount of, of happiness that I have is due to the amount that I share that happiness. So I think if, if respect is about sharing gratitude, then compassion is about sharing happiness. And I, I also believe that it's been a lot easier for me to be compassionate and, and, and share that happiness, even, you know, in times that I might not myself be happy, when I look at myself in the mirror and can genuinely tell myself that I love myself. And I think there's an important distinction there because I'm not happy all the time, nor do I think anyone out there is. If you're human, you have moments where you don't feel happy. You're just not. For whatever reason, external internal uh, circumstances but loving yourself is very different and I for a long time now have been able to look in my you know mirror daily 
and genuinely feel love for myself. And I think that's a really important place to get to. And, and when I was able to get there, I was able to share that love and, and compassion. And again, it, it doesn't need to even be through spoken word. It's the way that you generally interact with people, look at people. Compassion to me, in many ways, is, a, is an unspoken language. So whereas kindness, you know, you're, you're taking actions and you're saying certain things and, you know, respect, you, that's the way you're listening, you know, it's a lot to do with listening and, and then the way that you respond to things. I think compassion a lot of times has nothing to do with what, what you're saying and all to do with what, what you're giving off and what you're internalizing and what you're reflecting. Now, you talked about loving yourself and being able to look in the mirror every day. That's something that I'm sure a lot of people listening would just love to do. And, and I think the problem is we hear people do it. And some people like, oh, it just, it all comes back to love. It's, they simplify it into this. If you just love yourself, it's better. Well, yeah, that sounds great when you somehow find a, found a way to get there. So tell me, to start being able to do that, especially at such a young age, because like no one likes themselves when they're a teenager, man. Like it's just, but did you, is, was it a matter of doing certain things? Was it a matter of stopping doing certain things? Like, give us a couple of examples of things, if you can, where you picked out what led to your ability to, to look in the mirror every day and, and love yourself. So even on the days where you don't like the world, or maybe you don't like yourself, you can still love yourself. Was it things you did? Was it things you stopped doing? Was it a little bit of both? For me, it was about getting to the the core of, of who I am and being in a place where I wasn't holding resentment because I realized when I was doing some serious self-reflection um, a couple of years ago that a lot of the, the reasons that I wasn't able to feel that sort of love for myself wasn't because of the way I looked or you know even anything to do with my particular actions or, or, or lifestyle was really because I was holding resentment for someone in particular in a, in a specific circumstance earlier in my life and it took a lot to get to that place of recognizing and admitting that that's admitting to myself that that's kind of what was holding me back from feeling a little more whole and a little like a, making it easier to look at myself in the mirror and the breakthrough for me which will not be the case for everyone but the breakthrough for me was when I was working with with someone on on this resentment and kind of breaking through it is admitting to myself out loud that I was hurt and saying those words the first time I I thought in my mind it was going to be easy it wasn't going to be a problem we're like over a casual you know table at a restaurant I'm talking to to my my friend who happens to be an incredibly brilliant you know mind in all things brain and and humanity and you know we're having this conversation he's also a life coach and he he tells me to to look at him and say that I was hurt and I was like without a thought I was open mouth to go and say it and then I this like nervous 12 year old girl giggle came out of me and I don't know where it came from but it was something super deep inside myself that was very uncomfortable and I was not expecting it it caught me by surprise which is hilarious because it came out of me um, but that was an eye-opener to realize you know how deeply rooted and entangled that resentment was inside of me and, and how difficult it was for me to admit it just to myself and you know in front of a friend that I trust with my life right but as soon as I got through that that's when my compassion and love for myself started to evolve and and explode in, in incredible ways and 
And like you said, sometimes when you're working through something crappy at first, the sun on the other side is, is even brighter. And I definitely experienced that when I was able to, to work through that mess, which, you know, is a, is a constant journey. I'm still working through that, but I'm at a place now at least where I can genuinely say that I, I love myself. That's, that's amazing because uh, I was talking to, uh, I was listening to Amanda speak and I, I said to her, uh, her friend who was there about a young woman who told me that only hurt people hurt others. And uh, she looked at me kind of oddly for a second, and then she said, uh, wait about 15 minutes, okay? And we turned back and we're listening to her speak, and then sure enough, she said, only hurt people hurt people. <laughs> and uh, she kind of looked at me and said, yeah, it's kind of odd that, that that same sentiment came from two people who have been deeply, deeply hurt. And I, and I, I found that as I've talked to more and more people who've been through something tremendously difficult. Because it's one thing to talk, people talk about, oh, let things go. Often the people who I hear most say, oh, you got to let things go, have never had anything that weighed on them so heavily that it would be very difficult to do. But the more people I've talked to who genuinely have had deep-seated pain, they're the ones who say, like, only hurt people hurt others. And eventually you have to decide not to pass it along. So I guess one of the things people listening to is, like, you have to be able to take a look back and be like, where are the parts of my life that I'm hurt? And, and go from there. Because that's, that's amazing. And stop looking in other people because it's a waste of time if you are you know, still in a mindset that you can change others because you can only change yourself and only work on yourself. So don't kid yourself that you, know, you, can, you can make that shift inside another human being. Even if a friend of yours, you, you're watching them struggle and you're watching them from the outside and you just wish you can go in and you know, put in that missing puzzle piece or twist that last you know, screw, not only is it not your job, but you don't even have the capability to do that. You can support them through it. You can be there for them, but you can't be the one leading it. Same way they could not ever do that for you. So let, let's talk about you know the idea of starting with you, because the old idea of day one leadership is is to take us back to imagine, imagine a day you got to reset, knowing the things you know now, the experiences you have. So you still have that that insight and wisdom, but everything you've done so far gets wiped out, and so you get to start over again on day one. So imagine on day one, and I usually say that it's the first day of high school. I imagine people go back to, to the first day of high school. Now, in your case, that's not that long ago, actually. <laughs> of all the guests, you, you, the first day of high school is closest for you. Feels like decades, yeah. lifetimes. <laughs> so what if you could go and you could sit down with, with that version of Shane Feldman on your first day of high school and say, okay, that's day one. And you can give him one question. And you say, look, this question, you have to have an answer for it by the end of the day or by the end of every single day for the rest of your life. And you have this power in this magical world we're talking about where whatever question you give that version of yourself, they actually will seek out an answer for it every single day. So in it, what I'm in essence giving you is the opportunity to pick one thing that that version of yourself will do every day for the rest of their life. If you could go back and give him any question, what question would it be? Well, it's hard because now I'm thinking of something that is a little more timeless and it's something that can kind of go on forever and something that I'm actually d doing now um, that I definitely was not doing back then is every single night when I go to bed currently I ask myself and I, I speak out loud to myself alone in my bed uh, asking myself what three things I'm grateful for that day and like we were talking about before a lot of things for me personally are rooted in compassion and and loving myself and things like that and that's what allows me to share the, those parts of myself with others so I think going back to my myself on you know day one, first day of, of, of high school, telling myself I need to answer that question every single night, find three things that day that I'm grateful for, 
would have started the the shift, so to speak, in me much earlier on, um, which I'm I'm curious how that would have changed things and impacted things. But if I could go back, that that's that's the question. So you'd add, you'd make yourself say, okay, every night for the rest of your life, you have to be able to answer what are three things I'm grateful for today, or how did I recognize three things the three things I'm grateful for today? Yeah, it's not even it's not even recognized throughout the day. It's literally just, and this is what I'm doing currently, and it's it's incredibly empowering great way to kind of close off a day for me is just listing three things that I'm grateful for that you know first first three things I think of top of my head at the end of a day um, it, it could be specific events that happened that day it could be you know one of them might be family right something as simple as that but you know if that was the one tonight there's definitely something that happened that day that was you know specifically attached to that that item or that that idea that thought so what is the core value you think that's behind that question? It sounds to me like it's gratitude. Because I always say that when, whenever someone gives one of these questions, mm-hmm. obviously what they're saying is if you, do, if you answer this question, if you made it a part of your life every day, you would, you would better live this value. Is it gratitude that, that drives that particular question? Yeah, I think it's a cross between gratitude and compassion. And compassion we already talked a lot about, so I won't, I won't go further into that. And I think gratitude just complements uh, compassion beautifully because when you're recognizing three things internal and external that that you're thankful for that you're grateful for that day then you are especially when you're doing it out loud even if you're alone you are recognizing you know three things that had an impact on you and you're recognizing that there's there are things going on in your day in your life that are impacting you in positive ways so especially after day then that may not feel productive or may not feel particularly good you know, maybe you've been feeling, you know, really crappy all day or you're sick or, you know, mentally you're just not feeling all there. Having to answer that question at the end of the day and finding those three things that even after a long, hard, not fun day, finding those three things that you're grateful for just flips your brain into a different hemisphere entirely and, and helps you kind of put that day to bed on a good note and wake up the next morning, bright, new day, new opportunity. and something that I, I force myself to keep in mind in, in the morning, which is kind of like the flip side of, of the, the gratitude question, is refusing to let yesterday's mistakes control today's success. And that's something that I, I force myself to live by. So I, I put a day to bed at the end of a, of a day with the gratitude question and I wake up and while I can reflect on the past day, the past week, you know, I'm not going to forget what's happened, but I'm going to refuse to let those things control the kind of success that I could have today. So let's go back. Like, that's awesome. And, and I, I, how old are you? are 21, right, man? Yeah. Like, come on. Like, stop, knock this stuff off, right? You're making me feel bad. Because I did not figure out, well, I still haven't figured out some of this stuff. Surrounding myself with friends like you has helped. Oh, there you Let go. Let me tell you that. Well, let's get, okay, so you're telling, you're sitting down, you say, look, you got to make sure you answer this question on day one. You know, what are three things? Every night, I want you to make sure that at the end of the day, you say, what are three things I'm grateful for? And that's great. And gratitude and compassion are tied to that. Give them three, what are three other lessons? All right, like you get to three things you've learned about the world since that day. See, this isn't day one. For you now like that day as you said it seems like decades ago mm-hmm. what are what would, what three things about the world would you share that you've learned through life would you share with that guy on that day in that conversation i'm going back to to my day one so yeah high school self 
And you can say, look, in the time since that, here are three things that I've learned that I'd love to pass on to you in addition to that question. I think this might sound a bit of a, like a bit of a summary from things that we've already discussed, but, but truly I think first and foremost that you can't control anyone but yourself. I wish I, I knew that and believed that earlier on, that you can't control anyone but yourself. The second would be that resentment is pointless and it, it does not help anyone. If anything, it makes things worse when you're, when you're holding resentment for something or someone. And, uh, and the third would be, like I said before, it's, it's hard, if not impossible, to, to make friends if you aren't first friends with yourself. What's the toughest question you've ever been asked? <laughs> Honestly, the one, <laughs> and this probably is not what you're looking for, but the one that stumps me perpetually is what's your favorite uh, movie or, or TV show or play or musical, um, which I think is funny because everyone seems to have like their favorite. And I, I do not envy, nor do I understand how people at, at the Oscars and Grammys can select you know the best of anything. Because in my, in my opinion, every single creative piece of, of work is so unique that they're practically incomparable in, in, in every way. So I, uh, I have a really difficult time answering the question, what's your favorite movie? Because I could list you know a dozen right now that I love deeply that I would rate number one for 12 different reasons. Really? Yeah. What's interesting is, is I, I once was on a train with uh, a couple of guys, like they were 89 and 91 years old. And uh, we were having this great conversation. I talk about it in my, my upcoming book, but uh, they said, what do you do? And I said, well, I try to get students to focus on what's really important. And one of the guys was like, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I'll often ask students, you know, how many of you know how much money you made at your last job? And they all put up their hands. How many of you know your GPA? They all put up your hands. How many of you know who sings Party in the USA? And they all put up their hands. And I, then I ask, how many of you know the single happiest moment of your life? And I say, no one's hands go up. And most people, when I tell them that, are like, oh, yeah, you know, like, good job, Drew. Way to stick those students on the spot. And the one guy looks at me and goes, that's because it's a stupid-ass question. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, here's the problem. Like, with focusing on the happiest or the best or your, your favorite is there's one. And he said, the problem, like, with only one is that when you focus on the thing at the top, the best, like, the, the best movie, your favorite meal, the, the greatest sunset, the best kiss... There's only one in your life. And anyone that was excellent but isn't the best somehow gets diminished. And I said, well, what, what should we do instead? He goes, draw a line in your life, in your mind, of the great line. And your goal is to put as many things as possible above the great line. So if you have a meal, you don't sit back and rank it you know, compared to where it was the best meal you ever had. You simply acknowledge that meal was above the great line. This sunset was above the great line. And he says, what happens then is you go through your life accumulating giant piles of things above the great line, and there's an infinite number of things that can go above the great line. And your life becomes about celebrating everything that falls above that line. And so it's interesting when you that your answer to that made me think so quickly about Jimmy and Earl with their names and his comment that like great greatest is the enemy of great was what he said. And I, I just it was so interesting when you said that, I'm like, oh my God, that's such 
like I got that from an 89 and 91 year old and now I'm getting it from my 21 year old podcast guest and friend, <laughs> right? Like it's amazing that you sort of already figured that out. Yeah. And I'm just like sitting here. I wish you could see my face. Uh, just, well, you, I can't, I mean, you can, I wish everyone else could. I'm just, I'm dumbfounded by that. I mean, that's beautifully said and, and so, so true. And I could not agree with it more. And I want to be that guy on the train in, in 50 years and in, in 60 years in in one year. Now I want to be that person on the trains talking about the great line because that's so, so true. And we should strive to have, as many things as possible above that great line and stop trying to have things in our life competing for that number one spot. It's, you know, driven by that world of competitive nature and competition. And I, I try not to subscribe to that as, as much as possible. Cause I, I truly believe let's just try and get as many things above that great line as possible. Above That's the great brilliant. Line. I'm going to, I'm going to use that now. It's a credit it's, Jimmy and, and Earl. Earl and Jimmy. Yeah. Earl, and yeah. Jimmy. Earl was 89. Jimmy was 91. It, it was, it was an amazing meal with them. Then, then we're talking about habits, right? We do, we have this habit of being like, Oh, what's your favorite or what's your, what's the all time best or what's the greatest place you've ever eaten. And, and a big part of leadership is about habits. You know, we talk about day one is about establishing what, if you did it on day one every day, like what habit you establish. So what's, What's one of the toughest things to make a habit in your life? Like what habit is in your life now that was really hard or that you're even working at right now? I think in general, making a habit happen comes down to accountability because it's all about, you know, repetition. You have to do something on an ongoing basis. Um, and I'm not, I'm not doing this right now, but I... I have found it helpful for friends and I've watched it work well for them. Right now I'm at a place where I'm, I'm holding myself pretty accountable to certain things, going to the gym more regularly and, you know, doing, eating healthy, like doing these things because they make me feel good. I'm at a place now where I can, you know, maintain those habits just on a basis of them feeling good for me. But for one friend in particular, having a lot of trouble keeping themselves accountable. They wanted to, to reach a specific goal that they just could not get themselves to do. I think it may have actually been going to the gym. They just never went. They really wanted to. And so they gave a friend of theirs that they trust uh, an amount of money that they were uncomfortable losing. I think it was like $250 in cash. And if they did not, if they weren't held accountable, if they did not go to the gym X number of times a week for a, a lot of amount of time, not only would they lose that money, but that friend would have to donate it to a political party they don't believe in. Oh, really? So it was like the, yeah, and it, and it worked. And this friend went to the gym and, you know, they had to force themselves through that, that <laughs> what I would call unconventional setup uh, to make that happen. But I think, I think habits are all about accountability, whether it's others holding you accountable, you holding yourself accountable to, to have that, that process, to have that repetition. And once you do something a certain number of times, it'll be ingrained in you the same way you wake up and brush your teeth without thinking about it, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> right. That that's, that's, you know, the way that you want all those, those things to be in your life, just natural pieces that fall into your daily routine. And it's weird that I'm going to use that as a segue to my next question, this idea that eventually something just becomes part of your life without you really thinking much about it. And that can be a good thing, right? Going to the gym, eating right, uh, being kind and, and grateful. I've also found, though, it can be a negative thing. Like people start to do things and it gets accepted as fact without them questioning it. And so this is my my cultural cliche question, which is actually a term that I just was given by someone when I asked them this question. They're like, oh, you're looking for a cultural cliche. I said, what? What mantra or saying that gets thrown around all the time do you 
do you really disagree with? And she said, oh, cultural cliches, like stuff that people just accept as fact and no one's ever questioned them. So is there a cultural cliche you don't like? Um, you know, whether it's, I heard you say earlier, fake it till you make it. Um, <laughs> and I've had someone actually say, fake it till you make it is, is one they really don't like or everything happens for a reason. Like, is there one that, that bugs you? Yeah. Um, first of all, fake it till you make it bother, bothers me too sometimes, the way that some people use it. I think it has some merit, but I don't think it's so much faking it till you make it as it is maybe exaggerating something that you have when you're starting it a little bit so you can, you know, have that that aspirational line in the sand. But for me, one, I, I don't know if it's exactly a cultural cliche, but something that I hear time and time again, specifically adults telling kids, but but sometimes they can they can tell each other, or kids can tell kids, is telling someone else that they're not ready yet. Or you know, to wait and, and do that later. And, you know, I, I heard that when I was starting Count Me In and I have seen people time and time again, especially students, be told, you know, you're not ready, just focus on school. You're not ready, just, you know, graduate first. You're not ready, just, you know, go to post-secondary, get that diploma, get that degree, get a job, start a family, retire, die, then work on that thing, Yeah. right? But it's, honestly, I hear this too often and it's it's like I feel little explosions happening in my brain and my heart whenever I hear someone say that because first of all you have no idea what someone else is capable of I don't care if it's your student your child your best friend your boyfriend your girlfriend you have no idea what's going on inside of them truly and what they're capable of they're the only ones that can answer that for themselves and they're the only ones that can feel their gut and feel we you know what's going on inside of them and what they have to go and do and above and beyond that just that idea of shutting someone down, of you know, trying to help them play it safe, even if you think you're you're doing them a favorite, it's along you know what we talked about earlier about controlling other people. You can't control other people. I mean, obviously there are ways to you know manipulate, and we we watch that happen, and we've seen that happen in TV shows and, and real life, and gaslighting and all that stuff, and it's it's not healthy, it's not positive, and you cannot control other people. You cannot you know make them feel. A certain way that's that's all in them you can you can only feel for yourself and those are conscious choices that you make day in and day out so I think someone else telling you that you're not ready yet they they have no right to say that that shouldn't be something that comes out of anyone's mouth ever now do you think people are doing it out of, out of protection like it's it's the often I'm sure especially when you're talking about the the parent-child example um, or or the teacher-student um, scenario of course I I would I would hope I would assume that it's protection and and you know trying to shield them but I I just don't think it's it's your place I don't I don't care if you're a mom or a, a grandmother or a dad or you know it doesn't it doesn't matter it does not give you the right you don't you don't own your child you don't own your student they're their own human being and your you know your job is to help guide them and be their their guide but you're not their controller now where do you draw the line because i mean you must at this point and you mentioned that you've got in count me and you've got these mentors who help mm -hmm. people move forward so you must have students walk up to you and say okay well, shane you created the the biggest student run event in the world and here's what i want to do and as they say it to you in your mind you're thinking oh no like <laughs> they're setting themselves up to get crushed here. So how do you deal with that? And, and how do you do your mentors when, how do your, you and your mentors recount me in when young people particularly come to you and they've got plans that 
probably in your mind are beyond the scope of what they can or maybe even should do and there's a potential for harm if they do it because i'm sure people listening here whether it's their kids or their students or people that they mentor in some way officially or unofficially how do you deal with wanting to guide and part of that guidance is to try to help people not get crushed whether it's financially or emotionally because you must get that now a lot of people coming up definitely and there's a you hit on a few things so i want to i want to try and and tackle each of them separately so first of all uh, i i have never ever had a student and i do i hear a lot of student stories and pitches and ideas whether it's in in person after i i speak at their their school at a conference or um on on twitter or snapchat people are sending me snapchat ideas now it's hilarious and i've never once heard or looked at an idea and thought this is awful or on the flip side you know you're not capable because again who am i to do that and i i try to consciously walk that walk off not not often always um so I've, i've never had that you know internal internal reaction however i do especially after you know they've they've just been inspired just heard a story um, just heard me on stage. I've I've heard a lot of students spell out these huge, elaborate, like crazy, and I mean crazy in a great way, ideas that are large in life in in what I believe to be incredible ways. And what I try and do is kind of draw them back for a second, you know, recognize, okay, that's an incredible finish line, but there's a marathon ahead of you. So you have to start somewhere, right? You can't start at that finish line. And that's kind of it, it's almost a reality check it's not shutting them down it's not telling them the idea isn't often it's recognizing quite the opposite the idea has merit and value and could be something incredible even bigger than they're than they're thinking but it, it has to start somewhere just like count me in for me started as a tiny idea inside of my head inside a locker small group of people very manageable it did not start as me sitting and saying, okay, I want to run this broadcast. I'm going to produce it next month. It's going to reach a billion people around the world. Like that's not what happened. And if I did share that idea with someone, I hope they would have said, that's an awesome idea, but how about we start here? Like, or how about you go back to the starting point? So that's the first thing. The second thing you talked about kind of where you draw the line. So for me, you know, with telling them to start at, at the, or not start at the finish line, that's not really a line. That's just kind of a general rule that I hold myself to and it's you know what I feel is the best wisdom I can share with them is that that idea but when it comes to you know a parent or a teacher or someone else kind of that that line where do they cross it to really voice their opinion that you know you're not ready you shouldn't do that for me it's health and safety easy simple to the point for me it it always comes down to health and safety if you feel that you know something is going to potentially be be harmful or is you know the risk is just far greater than you would be comfortable doing yourself that's when i'll kind of flip the switch and say okay maybe you haven't realized this but for you know these few reasons this might not be the best idea but i still love your goal or the impact you know you're right that is a great cause What's another way we can tackle it? Or what if we switch this? And then it just goes into kind of a, let's bring it back to the brainstorming phase, not sticking the big, you know, red X on it, but just trying to find a way to rework it. Mm-hmm. So my friend, what's got you excited about the next few months? <laughs> uh, well, the next few months are, are going to be uniquely awesome because I'm headed to Asia for the first time in my life. So I'm incredibly I mean, excited doesn't even skim the surface of how I'm actually feeling. I don't know how to put my feelings into words right now. 
uh, I'm, I'm speaking in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia at a youth conference out there. So I've extended my time in, in Asia and I'm going to be backpacking Thailand for three weeks. And I've never been uh, to that part of the world, nor have I ever done a trip like that ever. With the amount that I've traveled, you'd think, but, but I've never done anything like that. And I'm riding solo and I'm just, I'm so, so pumped and, and, and stoked and eager to start that journey and, and uh, kick off what I'm sure will be a lifetime's worth of uniquely moving, uh, life-changing experiences. You know, it's interesting. I didn't have this, uh, this question planned. And uh, there's another guest I hope to have on the show called Dr. John Izzo. And he was telling me a story, um, or he told a story to the audience about uh, hiking the El Camino in Spain, which I guess was 700 kilometers long, but at the end of it, I'll just give this to you because think about it, and, and maybe you can ask this question, maybe you're not comfortable, but he talked about how at the end of the El Camino, you go up a big mountain and there's a, a crucifix up there, and at the base of it is a massive, massive mountain in and of itself of little stones, of rocks. And he says what happens is if you're hiking the El Camino, make sure you take a rock with you. Um, you take it from home. And what you do is when you finally get to the top of this long voyage, you take the rock and you place it with everyone else's and it symbolizes something that you're going to leave behind on that mountain in your life and not take back down with you. And I just thought when you're talking about, you know, going, getting the chance to go and hike, like what a cool, like I just wanted to share that with our listeners. Mm -hmm. What would you put on, like what rock would you leave behind? Now, if you're not comfortable answering that, feel free to, to say it, but... No, it's not a matter of, of, of comfort. It's just, you know, my mindset where I am right now looking ahead at this trip, I'm, I'm not focused at all on what I can leave behind. I'm focused entirely on what I can bring back. And for me, like all I can, all I can think about are the dozens, dozens of rocks that I want to bring back with me. And, and the coolest part to me is I don't know what a single one of those rocks are right now. But talk to me in a few months, and I'm certain I'll, I'll have a whole collection to share. Oh, man, I, I hope that we do. And, and so if people are listening, they want to learn more about you, count me in, uh, they want to get in touch, what's the best way to do it? Uh, ShaneFeldman.com is, is where I live online. Uh, and you can hit me up on just about any social media out there, except Pinterest. Haven't quite dabbled onto Pinterest yet. But Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those fun places. Um, is where you can find out more about me. And if you Google Count Me in Movement or check out cmimovement.com, that's where that organization lives in the digital world. Well, man, it's uh, it's been, I think it's only been like three years since we crossed paths for the first time. 13, and yeah. I, think, I think we're on four. Are we on four? I think we're on four. Well, man, it has been a ride watching you. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to share this. And so on day one, what Shane tells himself is, you know what, make sure that you're asking yourself every day, what are three things I'm grateful for today? And to make sure you let go of resentment and that you look you can look in the mirror every day and say, you know, I love that guy. And if you do that every day and you treat those lessons every day as day one, well, I think if you ever get to day two, it's going to be a good one. My friend, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. 
Thank you for giving me the the honor and privilege. Well, it was my privilege to share Shane's ideas with all of you here on the Day One Leadership Podcast. Thanks for giving us another hour of your time. Make sure you come back and check out next week's episode. I'm incredibly excited. We are talking money and leadership with personal finance expert Preet Banerjee. He is also the host of the Million Dollar Neighborhood on the Oprah Winfrey Network. There is so much in next week's episode that I actually had to break it into two pieces. We're going to talk about what personal financial management has to do with leadership. And I think the most fascinating stuff about next week's podcast is Preet starts diving into so many different things about the decisions that we make why we make them, not just in terms of finances, but in terms of our careers, in terms of leadership, and in terms of our relationships. I cannot wait to share it with you. Here's a little bit of a sneak peek. So this sounds like a pretty innocuous statement, but I'll tell you that if you can stick to this, you will change your financial life. If you borrow money and you are buying a depreciating asset, you're doing money wrong. And this is something that society has lost perspective on. Because you go back far enough in time, you tell people that you were borrowing money to buy something that went down in value. They looked at you like you had two heads. Like this was a foreign concept. Like you would, if you were Amish, they would give you the Amish shun. It's going to be a tremendous episode next week. Make sure you come back to the Day One Leadership Podcast. I also want to send a shout out. I did not mention this in the first episode. A big thanks to my friend, Mike Allison, award-winning screenwriter for actually putting together the music for this entire podcast. So thanks for the Day One Leadership jingle. Mike, thank you to all of you for listening and I will see you next week. This is Day One, every day is Day One. I'm Drew Dudley, see you next time. so much fun.